I hope that you will turn with me in a Bible to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And our focus today will be on verses 1 to 7. We're going to be looking at these letters dictated to the Apostle John by the Lord Jesus when John was in exile on an island known as Patmos. All because of persecution and suffering for the name of Jesus. And these are the letters that Jesus told him to write and to send to these churches. And there are seven of them. And if you plot them out on a map, you will see that a messenger would sail about 60 miles from Patmos, arrive at the major city of Ephesus, the capital of the Roman province of Asia, and would roughly go clockwise to each one of these churches and these cities. And while each of these letters has a distinctive flavor to it, depending on what's going on in that church, in that city. It's also true that Jesus wants all of his churches to hear everything that he has to say here. You'll notice at the end of every letter, we're encouraged to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to this church or that church, but to the churches. And that reaches to our own present time and place, to Tabernacle Baptist Church of Raleigh. Even if you're not concerned that much with what Jesus has to say to any particular church, what he has to say to the churches also applies to us as individuals. This is what Jesus sees and what Jesus knows, and everyone should care about that. I don't think it's so popular these days, but there was a time when the phrase, what would Jesus do, was in vogue. WWJD. And we put this on bracelets and other trinkets and so forth. And it's a good question to ask. What would Jesus do in this given circumstance with this dilemma? What would Jesus want me to do here? But if we're not careful that question can easily bleed into an implicit form of atheism. Now, how could that be the case? If we ask the question as though Jesus were a long-dead figure from history, and it's your best guess or my best guess what he would do now or what he would say now, well then, that's atheism. Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is present. He is watching. And he knows. And he's not indifferent either. He's watching right now to observe what I say to his church. Am I speaking words that would be pleasing in his sight or not? Are you listening like Jesus is watching and observing 
I can see if you drift off to sleep. But Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. And that matters far more. What does Jesus see? We don't have to wonder. We have the very words of Jesus given by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John to the church. This is what Jesus wants to say to you and to me and this church right now in the year of our Lord 2022. Do you see Jesus in this way? Yes, he was dead, but he lives. Look, I'm alive, he says to John. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, behold, I live forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. May we listen up as he speaks, starting with the letter to the church in Ephesus, beginning at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The words of Jesus to his church. Notice it's his church, not our church. And as you're going to see, the things that Jesus sees and the things that Jesus cares so much about are so different from what most contemporary churches, especially in this country, see and are concerned about. And so this can and probably should hit us with the shock of a cold shower. Our concerns, our ways, our priorities are so different from those of Jesus. And we'll see just how different they are. But let's notice the pattern here that we see in these letters. There's a structure to it. In each case, it begins to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Who is the angel? Well, some have speculated that the angel is the pastor of the church. 
But we don't have any other examples in the New Testament of a pastor being referred to as an angel. I certainly don't feel like an angel, I'll tell you that. It's also the case that the word angel just means messenger, messenger. And so it could be that in this book that is so symbolic that the Lord is using angel or messenger to refer to the particular individual who is to deliver this letter to the church in Ephesus. That's one possibility. Another possibility would be that this is a literal angel who in some sense is representative of the church in Ephesus and in some sense is responsible for overseeing and working in the church of Ephesus. The bottom line is we don't know. But the good news is it's not that consequential for understanding what Jesus says to the church. And then after that address, in each letter, we're told about who Jesus is, and we're given a, a different description, a different title, a different attribute of Jesus' per, person and, and work, who he is. And then in many of the cases, Jesus has some positive affirmation for them alongside a rebuke, followed by a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. And in the majority of these letters, there is unhealth, spiritual unhealth. And it should not surprise us today when the majority of churches are unhealthy, spiritually speaking, in some sense. And in Ephesus, specifically, we see a church that outwardly has all the marks of what we would think is a thriving, flourishing church. And yet, Jesus says, I'm about to remove your lampstand. In other words, I'm about to extinguish your light. I'm about to unchurch you. If you don't correct what I say is wrong. Deadly seriousness from the Lord Jesus. And we should take it with deadly seriousness today. The bottom line here is that this is a church that despite all its outward busyness has run down to a flicker of love for Jesus. And no matter how much is right about them, as long as this light is a flicker, it's about to be snuffed out entirely. Now, how would you describe your love for Jesus today? Is it a raging bonfire, or is it more of a flicker? And if you're honest, you have to ask, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord. That soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word. How is it with you? How is it with Tabernacle? Those are the questions. And let's look at who's speaking here. These are the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among 
the seven golden lampstands. What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you back up to chapter 1, verse 20, we're told that in John's vision of Jesus holding the seven stars of the seven golden lampstands, we're told that the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Recall the call to worship reading from Zechariah 4. How is Israel pictured? As a lampstand, as something that gives off light. But in each case, the images of stars, of lampstands, these are things that reflect light, borrow light from something else. And here we recall the words of the Lord Jesus in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. And so any light that emanates from you or from me is a borrowed light. It comes from Jesus. We're merely reflecting his light. In the language about these seven stars, the seven angels representing the seven churches, that he holds them in his right hand shows us that Jesus possesses sovereign control over his churches. Not the pastor, not the elders, not deacons, not church council, not even the church in conference, believe it or not. In a Baptist church, the church in conference carries a lot of weight. You know what I'm talking about, if you've been in Baptist circles for any length of time. That, that's the final say. Once the church in conference has spoken, that's it. No, Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. Not you, not me. Do you recognize his authority over your life and over this church? That's who he is, whether we acknowledge it or not. And then we're told that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. This speaks to the fact that Jesus is not only sovereign over his churches, he is also actively working in the midst of his churches. Now, on a given Sunday, if we were to have a celebrity or a politician on the national level, maybe even the state level, if they were to worship with us, don't you know we would all be aware of his or her presence? Even if it's not a politician we're particularly fond of? We're aware he or she is in the room with us. But do we have that kind of awareness that Jesus the sovereign Lord of the universe is in our midst. Hmm. See, we tend to think we show up and we, we observe. Maybe we like the songs or the music. Maybe we're entertained by what happens. Maybe we're engaged by the sermon or not. But it's basically a show. You're out there, I'm up here, and you're judging it like a film critic to see, well, I like that part or not that part. No. The audience is Jesus. He is watching. He is walking in our midst and moving by his Holy Spirit. And one day, he will return bodily to this earth to establish his kingdom and his reign in a new heaven and a new earth. Do we have that kind of awareness? He's watching. He knows. He sees. 
Or do we think of him as a figure on a stained glass window? Or merely some kind of historical figure for us to imitate? Or whose example we admire and want to follow? Is Jesus a living presence in your life? Someone you talk to? Someone you worship? Do you make your decisions? Do you utter your words with the awareness? He's watching. He knows. He sees. Or not. And in each of these letters, we're told about what he knows. He says, I know. And here's what he commends in the church of Ephesus. There are nine positive things that he has to say about this church. And whereas when we were looking at Hebrews 12, the exhortation is to run the race marked out for us. Throw up everything that's slowing you down. Don't just sit there. Do something. But here we have a church that is very much doing something. There is a fervency. But it's a fervent apathy. A fervent apathy. There's a loss of zeal for what matters most. But let's look at what Jesus says about it. I know your deeds. This is a busy church. I've looked at your church calendar. Wow. You guys have all kinds of events. You've got, you've got the vacation Bible school. You've got fall festival. You've got the egg hunt. You've got all the things for kids. You've got events for senior adults. You've got events for people just starting their career. Wow, you've got something for everybody. You're busy. I've seen your deeds. I know your hard work. This is strenuous work. You're not just doing something. You're really exerting yourselves to do this. Look at all the ministries you're a part of. Look at all the ministry projects that you've participated in. Look at all the mission trips that you've gone on. Wow, you are working and you are working strenuously. And I, I know your perseverance. I know there have been setbacks. I know there have been challenges. And you've persevered through that. I know all that. And I know that you're orthodox. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You're orthodox. You have right beliefs. You have no desire to tolerate what is displeasing in God's sight. And he gives further evidence of that when he mentions the practices of the Nicolaitans. And we don't really know anything else about the Nicolaitans other than that it was some form of idolatry and it is hateful in the eyes of Jesus. Their practices are hateful in the eyes of Jesus. And the people in Ephesus want nothing to do with that. Good, good. And you've tested. These are discerning people. There are people that have come in their midst that claim to be apostles, that claim to speak for Jesus, and they've tested them. They've said, hold on, hold on. Let's, let's see how what you're saying aligns with what God has already revealed to us and those we know are apostles and what aligns with the scriptures. And beyond that, they've judged correctly. You found them false. You get an A on that. 100% grade. Good marks on your orthodoxy and your power to discern what is displeasing. And then he bears down again. He doubles down. You have persevered. I know you've done all this in the face of all kinds of opposition. And if you go back and read about when this church was founded in Acts chapters 19 to 20, you'll see 
there's a riot in this city, all because people are getting rid of their idols based on their response to the gospel preached by Paul, the Apostle Paul. You've persevered, I know that. And you've endured hardships for my name. You've stood firm. You're still here, despite all of that. And you have not grown weary. You're still going strong, still working, strenuously. I know all that, Ephesians, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. So we see the praise of Jesus in these nine commendations, and then we see his protest in verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, how could this happen? How could a church that's this busy and this outwardly thriving have missed the love part? And this is love for Jesus, not just love for other people that, that goes along with love for Jesus, but your first love. As we read in 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus laid down his life for us sinners. That's how we know what love is. He defines love. He sets the standard for love. Not me, not you, not the culture. That's your first love. And the first thing that happens to you when the Holy Spirit brings about the new birth and regenerates your heart is you feel an affection for Jesus that you did not have before. And it's not just a giddy emotion. It's not just a honeymoon emotion. It's, it's a posture of your heart, a frame of mind. It's not just a feeling. It's a frame of mind that says, Jesus is righteous and I'm not. It is only by his blood that I can be brought back to God. Oh, I need that. That's your first love. That's the blessedness when first you see the Lord. That's the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word. That's the starting point. Have you ever felt that? Or not? That's true love for Jesus. Now, how could something that burns that brightly grow cold? How could it be forsaken? How could it be forgotten? Well, understand this about yourself. Spiritually speaking, we are all cold-blooded. We are all cold-blooded. Spiritually speaking, we are unable to regulate our own body temperature, our spiritual body temperature, just like a reptile. We've got to get in the sun, so to speak. But in this case, we need to get within earshot of the gospel. We need to be in proximity to Christ. He's the light of the world. And the more we turn our back on him or drift or think, well, I've, all, I, I've heard all that before. I've read the whole Bible, of course. I've, I've heard every sermon. I, I know what he's going to say. Same old, same old. Oh, do you see what's happening to your heart? It's getting frosty and icy, 
And unless the light of his love revealed to us in the gospel burns that off, your heart will die. Wake up, Ephesians. Wake up, tabernacle. We're cold-blooded, spiritually speaking. Do you realize that? And it's really no surprise when those who are at best intermittent in their worship attendance, people who maybe they'll be here once a month, maybe not. Oh, they're just so busy. I get all that. I get all that. But it's, it's no surprise when those same people tend to be the people who grumble the most, who tend to be most critical and judgmental. It's no wonder. Of course you are. Your heart has grown cold. And that frostiness, the ice needs to be melted away and burned off before it's too late. There's also the case of what we could call religious idolatry. Religious idolatry. Just because you're in church doesn't mean that your heart won't grow cold. It all depends on why you're here. What are your motivations? How are you listening? Are you following along? Or are you thinking, man, I'm ready for lunch. What am I going to have for lunch? Or this is what i got to do this week. Are you praying along with me as I pray? And whoever's praying, are you truly meaning what you sing? Never mind if you prefer the instruments or the tune or whatever. Do you mean what you say? Is your heart engaged or not? We can be very religious and still be idolaters. You realize that. And then sometimes our heart can grow cold and we can forsake our first love because of misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. We're preoccupied with the things of this world. We're so prosperous that we don't feel like we really need Jesus or his grace. We're comfortable. We've got everything we want to eat. We've got comfortable houses. We ride in whatever we want to ride in. And this is why Jesus warns over and over again about the danger of the love of money. Because this is a threat we don't really dread. Who's afraid of having too much money? No one. But it's not the money, it's the love of the money that's the problem. And it's so easy for, having, for the money to creep into a love for that. We want more and more. We want to be more and more comfortable. That's a problem. It can affect your heart. Now, one very important distinction we need to make here is the difference between the fervency of our love for Jesus and the focus of our love for Jesus. And this goes along with misplaced priorities. You cannot and you will not run red hot all the time for Jesus. Anyone who claims to or acts like they do, just wait, <laughs> just wait. You will not run red hot for Jesus all the time. You will not always be on fire for the Lord, as we say. Your fervency will wax and it will wane. Expect that. You may be on a spiritual mountaintop on Sunday, but by Wednesday, ah, where is that blessedness I knew? Where'd it go? That will be your experience as a Christian. 
And when that happens, we need to rekindle our fervency. Read your Bible. Talk to the Lord. Tell Him about the coldness you feel in your heart. And pray for Him to reawaken your fervency. To raise the temperature of your spiritual zeal. But that's not the problem here in Ephesus. The problem in Ephesus is the focus of their love. The fervency's there. They're running red hot. They are busy for Jesus. But they've forsaken their first love. Instead of focusing on Jesus as the object and aim and goal of their love, they're focused on doing so much for Jesus and in the name of Jesus. And they're not doing it with Jesus. That's the critical distinction. To use the analogy of a marriage, your fervency for your spouse is not always going to red, run red hot, right? Well, of course, mine does, but probably not in, in, in your marriage, right? Right? No, for every marriage, you know there's a honeymoon period. For every single marriage, there is a honeymoon period. And then there's a period where you're not, and in those cases, you have to f- choose to express love. You have to remember why you chose that person and why they chose you. And that has to be rekindled. But that's different from when your focus changes. When you're no longer focused on your spouse or what would please your spouse or what would bring you closer to your spouse, that is when the ground is fertile to look elsewhere and to be tempted. This is like King David when he's sitting idly in his palace and he looks down, oh, there's Bathsheba. He took his focus off the Lord and what he should have been doing. And it can happen to any one of us. And it can happen more quickly than we realize. And this is the nature of forsaking our first love. Sometimes we don't even realize it's happening until we realize, where did it go? And and this is not about trying to stir up some feeling. This is about turning to Jesus, submitting yourself to Jesus, surrendering your life and your plans and your future and your family and your marriage to Jesus. That's what it's about. May God protect us by the power of his spirit from forsaking our first love because see how dangerous the warning is If you do not repent, if you don't turn away, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'll snuff you out. Remember, no church is indispensable. The Lord will have a people for himself. He will have a remnant. That's a promise. But we're not promised that any given church will be permanent. Heed the warning. And when you realize that your love for Jesus is down to a flicker, What do we do? Verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus. When you first realized how desperate you were for his grace. And let me tell you, nothing, nothing will melt away the ice from your heart and restore a red hot love for Jesus like remembering and recalling how eternally lost you would be apart from his intervention 
Look at how far you've fallen. Repent. Turn away. Turn back to Jesus. Never mind how busy you are and fervent you are. Turn back to Jesus and do, do the things you did at first. Get back to the basics. Get on your knees and pray. Open up your Bible. Read. Sing. Sing a new song to the Lord. That's what we're to do. And we have the promise. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life. This tree that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, had access to that has been cut off from us will be made available to us now on the basis of what Jesus has done. And you can take, you can eat, you can enjoy eternal life with God. So instead that heaven is a world of love, never-ending love. If you refuse to forsake your first love, you're promised an eternity of love with the God who is love. Well, here's the real test. Test yourself against this. Familiar story. Jesus goes to eat with a Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. And while he's eating there, a woman of ill repute comes up behind him and anoints his feet. She's shedding her tears. She knows she needs Jesus. She wipes with her hair, pours perfume on them. And when the Pharisee, the, the host of this meal, says, if that man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. He's thinking, oh, Jesus, so disappointed in you. I thought you were better than this, Jesus to let a woman like that get close to you. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And a, denari a denarius is about a, a day's wage. So 500 days of work versus 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. You're right, Ephesians. You're right. You know. You know the answer. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You do not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Have you been forgiven much, or have you been forgiven little today? You see, when we're in church for some period of time, we start to think, okay, we're the church people, and then there are people out in the world. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and it's this war between us. And that is so misguided. No, no. 
if you're a true Christian, you're here because Jesus intervened in your life. Because he interposed his precious blood. And you would be just as lost and just as hell-bound as any other person were it not for him. But you see how a cold heart starts to think, I don't need him. I'm, I'm righteous. I'm good. That, that woman, of course, she needs to be forgiven. But me? Oh, no. If you remember your first love, you know you have been forgiven much. Much. Which is it for you? Much or little? I pray that you would know you have been forgiven much and you would love much that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And that you would obey every one of Jesus' commands. And that you would shine his light. And that you would be his light in this world. As we go to him in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you possess the power to enliven and to awaken backsliding sinners like us. You and you alone possess the power to save. And so, Lord, I pray that we would realize just how eternally lost and eternally hopeless we would be apart from you. And that we would recover by the power of your Spirit the greatness of your love, the height and the depth of your love. And for anyone, Lord, hearing this message who looks back and says, I'm not sure I've ever been in love with Jesus, Lord, Awaken them today. May this be the day of salvation. May they be born again by the power of your Spirit. May they fall in love with you. May they enjoy you and glorify you as they never have before. Oh Lord, help us to walk more closely with you. May we mean every word we sing and every word we pray as you bring about a steadfast spirit within us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. All for your glory and praise. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.